Hey everyone, this is Adya Khan and you're listening to Immigrantly. I hope you guys are washing your hands and social distancing. I am recording this episode in April and I'm hoping when I release it in May, things will be much better. But right now I have newfound appreciation for little things in life that people take for granted. For instance, today I am craving bubble tea, but I'm also grateful and I realize that I am privileged to be able to stay home, cook, relax, while there are so many people on the front lines who are literally risking their lives to save ours. So a shout out to all of them, doctors, nurses, grocery store workers, emergency crew, thank you for what you're doing. We are better because of you. Stay safe. And now to our today's guest, Iram Parveen Bilal. She is a creator, a physics Olympian turned filmmaker. She wears eight rings on her body and appreciates honesty. She is an enabler who focuses on thought-provoking stories that are socially impactful and envision an inclusive world. This is how Iram describes herself. When someone uses these words to describe themselves, you know that the art they produce is going to be interesting and thought-provoking to say the least. And what more could you expect from someone who believes that genuine curiosity is the antidote to fear? Irim's films have addressed a lot of issues like feudalism, youth movements, cultural stigma, generational ties and poverty. Her latest film is I Will Meet You There. I've watched this film and I loved it. It's a story that follows the father-daughter journey of Majid, a Chicago policeman, and Dua, his teenage ballerina daughter, as he goes undercover in a mosque for a special FBI assignment. Here to speak with us today is Iram Barveen Bilal. Shooting in Pakistan is like a dream. Filmmaking is my passion, but I'm so happy when I'm doing it in Pakistan because it's just, you know, what I absolutely love and these days my thoughts are really with them is like the day laborers and sort of like the frontline people, you know, the the, the boy who'll bring your chai and, and you know, the, the darzi and the, like they're just so sweet. Thank you so much, Irim, for coming on my podcast. Yes, I'm so excited to chat with you. I've heard such good things about your podcast from Sheetal. I'm here for you. Kuli Kitab. <laughs> so let's start with your film. I'll meet you there. I watched it and I loved it. And I have so many questions about the movie itself. But it was supposed to premiere at South by Southwest Festival. Unfortunately, it was cancelled due to the pandemic. So what is the status now? You know, I was just having a chat with an ex-European sales agent who's now a consultant and consulting producer. Everybody just keeps using the same words. Unprecedented. We have no idea. Everything is on hold. 
And it just seems like such a doomed world. And especially for somebody who's been working on a project for 10 years. I mean, this was that passion project that, you know, I have to make it. I have to make it. So it was like, it was that, it was that personal film that, you know, I was just stubborn. Kidding, I have to make this. And it took so long and it was so impossible to make because it was such a niche personal story. So getting financing, getting distribution, everything has been challenging. So something like South by Southwest narrative competition, like the odds are 0.07%. I actually calculated them. To get into that level was like a dream for an independent filmmaker because it is the best launch. I mean, short of Sundance, like... So Sundance and South by are the, like considered two of the best festivals in the US and then Tribeca. And uh, to be in that, in one of 10 films in competition, like it's the best shot you can have, like towards, you know, just the buzz and the, then possibly great sales. And, and it was so close, you know, it was six days away from it. And I had just had my first child. So I was actually through postpartum figuring out the delivery of the film and everything oh, was, wow. you know, somehow magically I had done it. And then, you know, that week was like a week from hell because it felt like you had a relative in the ICU and you knew they were going to pass away because it was like every day, oh, Facebook pulled up, everyone's texting me. And I'm like, I've read the news. I just don't want to believe it. Just stop telling me this. And, you know, quietly, the other competition directors were reaching out to each other on social media and being like, hey, I've got like this pit in my stomach. I'm so scared. I was so anxious. Every morning I would wake up with my stomach, like just very uneasy because, um, I had a feeling, you know, but I, I thought that they would just still go ahead. Even when they kept saying we're going ahead, part of me was also really just upset because with all these buyers pulling out, great, you have a festival, but it's just a party at that point, right? And even that, it's like, okay, fine, for my cast and crew, you know, Kavi Khan, we were trying to get him from Pakistan. We had like a whole day press junket lined up. We had such good like press. I had galvanized the local Austin community. We were going to be sold out. We had an after party with you know, booked Airbnbs, all the cast was coming. So much of the crew was coming. And, um, and, you know, part of me was uneasy. And I was thinking, I was telling my husband, I was like, you know, maybe we shouldn't take the baby, you know, it, it started becoming this like anxiety thing just to get it over with now, instead of like a party that we would want to enjoy, it became this anxiety thing, like, okay, fine, let's just get it over with. So I actually remember when I found out the news for a moment, you know, it was devastating, but there was also this strange relief lurking around. Maybe it was the right thing. And and then obviously just even that week, it was such a long week. But at the end of the week, it did feel like they had made the right decision. So you're talking about the decision being right because of the pandemic, health reasons, right? So you wrote this really raw and emotional essay for Filmmaker magazine after the premiere was cancelled. And I'll just quote you here that indie filmmakers are, in your words, the hidden collateral damage in face of politics, finance and public health. What do you wish that people who are outside of the industry would understand about emotional work that goes into being an indie filmmaker? You know, when this cancellation happened, people were like, oh, you'll get another festival. Oh, you know, it's okay. Like they just couldn't quite grasp. The reason I wrote that op-ed is because I started realizing that it's so difficult to grieve for something when other people don't understand what you've lost. As it is like when some, you know, when people even, God forbid, when you lose a loved one, people say, oh, I understand. And they've not lost a loved one. <laughs> that in itself is something else. But then it is, this is very particular because until and unless you're an indie filmmaker, you don't know. Because here's what it is, Sadia. Like you work for years, okay? Like an average independent film, when I talk to people three years, five years, seven years, 
10 years because it takes so long to get financing because even making the cheapest film is so expensive. And then trying to sell it and trying to get it out into the world because the film business is, is a mafia, right? I mean, it's run by conglomerates and studios who control everything from like inception of idea all the way to distribution chains as well. So it's like you as an indie filmmaker really have a shot. Like there's only few entryways for you to make your career from like indie to like be actually seen. You spend majority of your life being unseen. Like, you know, when you talk to like a random like small town barber, if you're traveling on a road trip or like a convenience store person, when you say you're a filmmaker, they say, oh, what is it? And you just smile at them because they think that, you know, if you say the name of your film, they would recognize it. Well, we're dealing with a market of surplus. It's not like I'm making a Marvel film that like I'll talk to somebody in, and on a road trip, you know, passing through Kansas and they will know what my film is. It's like just the the disconnect between audiences and what they understand are the troubles of making films and the actual process of making films. This notion that like film has... Uh, Filmmakers are like rich and famous and that like they would have heard of a film. You understand that there is such a gap in understanding of the reality of the economics of the film business and how impossible it is to even get to a point to be at a showcase where people would have heard. At least now with South By's name, I feel like at least the Desi diaspora in Pakistan or in America, I'm hoping would have heard of my film, but I, I don't know. I All I know is I have to work really hard. Like, you know, my first film when I was distributing it, I was literally like going through yellow pages in Sacramento, calling up every like Desi store and putting flyers up so people would come to the screening of my film. Like it's just soup to nuts. Like there is struggle at every phase. There is nothing where like people are coming to you. It's always push, push, push. How receptive is Desi community to Desi indie filmmakers? I mean, it's difficult. Uh, again, I think that the other notion is that a lot of independent filmmakers, the topics that they can afford, right? So it's it's too, it's a cause and effect thing. A lot of filmmakers, uh, just because it's a very competitive field, are not probably greenlit by the studios because they're just a supply and demand nature. But also the type of stories they want to tell, like I'll Meet You There, are very sort of raw slice of life films and studios, for whatever reason, will not put their money behind it because their metrics say that these are not the films that make a lot of money. And so because of that, it's a vicious cycle. The films they put out are the films that reach the vast, you know, sort of majority of audiences. So then they're used to watching that. Like, so our crowd, what Hollywood does, that's what Bollywood does. So a lot of Desi crowd is just used to masala, big films. Even in Pakistan, that's the issue now. Is like the films that make it to the big theaters and that the television studios will put their force behind are films that are just these, you know, sort of big performance pieces. They not necessarily focus on like character-driven stories. So that is why... The diaspora also kind of doesn't understand how to process these films. But I will say that once they come to the theater, most of them leave really happy. With me, at least, because I did so much work with Josh, I know that with this film, inshallah, if I, when uh, <laughs> let's hope things calm down. My plan is that Q3, Q4 this year to travel with it in America is I'll do a theatrical myself. If you don't get a theatrical distributor, I'll go because I am now building on this audience that I already had for Josh. And this is a... You know, I think it's a better film. It's made in English as well. So like even, you know, the younger crowd that's uh, born brought up in the US hopefully will connect with it. It's a great film. In fact, let's talk about I'll Meet You There. Now, what I witnessed was a, there were a number of thematic issues that you addressed. There was issue of generational patterns and familial ties, which was at the crux of the film. 
and the character Doa, she's following in the footsteps of her mother. And then she has this newly ignited relationship with her grandfather, who's played by Kavi Khan. By the way, his acting was impeccable. I was so impressed with him. Like, I'm sure you and I both grew up watching him in Urdu dramas, but he did such a wonderful job. What message did you want to share about the way families create their stories throughout generations? I think the message, if there is one specifically in Almiti there, is a message of acceptance. I think that um, we all live our own realities and we all have our own, our own baggage. We all have our own interpretation of ideology and the rules of the world uh, and the rules of books and the rules of God. And I think that in some space, that's why this film is called I'll Meet You There based on the great Jalaluddin Rumi's quote. We need to understand to accept and coexist. We need to understand that everything is a shade of gray and we need to sort of, you know, proceed with that level of uncertainty and acceptance in our surroundings. And that not just, it's not just a, you know, a family like a grandfather, father and a daughter, as is in the case of this film. It's a larger conversation, which is why I feel this film is universal, is that it's a conversation between communities, between nationalities, between us versus them and whatever we classify as other, is that there is always enough commonality to sort of meet somewhere in the middle. Hmm. And uh, that was it. I mean, that's the message. To me, the message of I'll Meet You There is that you should be okay to represent who you are and what your emotional truth is to your family and your family should accept you. There's so much hurt that comes from a lot of especially Asian sort of households where, you know, we hide who we really are, you know, whether it's like a sexuality issue or a love issue or, a, you know, like career choice issue or a faith issue that we are so worried about being judged and being sort of not loved anymore. I think at the heart of it, it's about being loved. Everybody wants love and love is a, one of the best forms of acceptance, right? And so... That's, I think, what the film really tries to talk about is I can still love you. I can still accept you. You can still exist even if we're not on the same page. That's true. But you also demonstrated kind of, I would say, tension between individualistic versus collectivist societies, right? Expectations of grandfather versus granddaughter um, based on where they grew up and how they envisage or envision family ties. So it was an extremely interesting mix of two cultures and two societies because most of the time we think that two cultures western and eastern cultures are at odds but in this it was a great mesh of two cultures and especially the relationship between Dua and her grandfather was so rich and so interesting as I was watching it I wished my kids had that kind of relationship with their grandparents because obviously my parents live in Pakistan, my husband's parents live in Pakistan. It is not as strong a relationship. What was going through your mind, Iram, when you were creating these characters? First of all, thank you for connecting with the film on that level. I think so much of your own experience as a filmmaker goes into your films, right? The conversations about dance and Islam come from a very personal point in my life uh, my sister who taught me how to dance now thinks that music and dance are in some form or fashion haram and that's fine that's her journey that's her belief and I respect her um, but you know there's a lot of things I want to say to her that I can't 
and you know so <laughs> i think do and baba kind of externalized that there is so much of like my parents my dad and baba there's so much of you know when majid says oh i'm still answering questions with questions that's my mother if you ask her a question she will always be like why are you asking this question <laughs> to try and figure out what your motives are there's so much takalluf in like a desi family and so much um, sort of layering people never brown people never say what they mean it's true it's because we have so much tazeeb around like what should be said what shouldn't be said out of respect and out of boundaries and there's just a lot of boundaries actually in our culture right so a lot of that came in and then the specifically the cop situation is like i remember after 911 i was at some sort of community fundraiser and i remember seeing this complete orthodox muslim like dadi wala guy in um, LAPD uniform and i just couldn't get him out of my head and i was like wow what an interesting weird situation ah. to be in in the world we live in right now and so i think that that always lingered in my head and so at, at some point the project essentially became an ensemble piece where i just wanted to to dive into what life is like in post 9/11 muslim communities you know people don't understand that within the muslim community there's been such a fracturing pre 9/11 i felt like being muslim was just a part of like your life it wasn't like called to question ke acha ji what type of muslim are you like when everybody looked at you like oh you're muslim you you suddenly were an expert in the room and you had to be like okay well i didn't take my religion that seriously how much do i believe what do i believe people became extremely conservative some people threw the hijabs off it was just like a whole crazy like there was a spotlight and everybody was just like a deer in headlights and they had to figure out okay you know so there was a lot of fracturing in the community there's this whole movement of reclaiming islam like this protestant movement and then there's this whole backlash where people have become very sort of strict stringent born again muslims and the rest of the world doesn't know what all this socio politics has done to the community and so in some form or fashion that was kind of important to have a conversation on as well but in addition to that you were also trying to address some stereotypes because there is one conversation that dua has with her father about treatment of women in islam and you debunk a myth that is what's written in Quran about beating women and but you do it in such a subtle way that it doesn't come across as preachy it is just a conversation bit that you know anybody can understand or relate to why did khatak kill ma judgments were crippling who judged her baba he's not the man i knew once okay started reading the quran today what did you read the verse about striking women chapter 4 verse 34 you know the word strike is misinterpreted as hitting it actually means to go and strike Was that a conscious effort on your part to debunk those stereotypes and narratives around Islam? I was a little worried because you know I'm no scholar and I had a bunch of scholars actually read the script because I knew that I was talking about verses from the Quran and I wanted to make sure you know at one level it's a character any character can have any point of view but people just go up in arms when you were talking about anything remotely religious. so i really like i had a bunch of, uh, this was actually a suggestion from a scholar that I, i had spoken to and i said yeah it's very it's very important to me that i'm not trying to be that that filmmaker who's just like you know slashing anyone who's religious like i didn't want it to be that which is why i wanted to show that you know yes the quran is misinterpreted sure there might also be things in the quran that you know one of the characters doesn't agree with 
and and that's their reality you know so it i wanted to have shades of gray everywhere so yes it was very intentional i didn't you know i don't say whether dance is haram or halal like it does not say the film doesn't have one point of view it has two points of view and it's like you the audience should decide who you really agree with you know so yes it was important to me and it was important to kind of also kind of gesture towards yes there are certain things that are misinterpreted you know the the meaning of jihad is misinterpreted it's interesting a lot of people paul feig just saw the film and i was honored that he saw he loved it and he said you know i've learned so much in just 90 minutes that's what i was going to say i think for a western audience it is such an interesting film and it's done so brilliantly that if somebody were to learn something or take away from it it won't come across as boring or preachy but just you know part of the conversation yeah i really hope so sadi i mean inshallah my dream is to really travel with the film and engage but it's heartbreaking i i don't even know if there's any space for that dreaming right now you know so i just must quietly wait is film ke sath i mean sabar has been a big thing i mean it has been this film has been doomed from the beginning i mean we lost the financing twice we were just it we've shot it in 18 19 days it was it's just been so which is why i think that the the result of south by was like such a oh my god you know it all paid off and then this happened <laughs> so we just kind of like i'm just moving forward i'm working on something else thankfully i have that i'm i'm right now being paid to write and i'm just trying not to think about it because it hurts so much when i go down that rabbit hole i think it's a i think it's an important film and i personally think it's really going to resonate because when we had test screenings i had people and so for me it was very important not to because my first film josh really just related with like people of your generation who came from pakistan and had the nostalgia factor but i felt that i wasn't able to connect with like i guess it's called the first generation the people who were born here and so this film was very important to me because i sent it to a bunch of specific people in the test screening phase and these girls called me these are girls who grew up here and they said this was my story and she said i couldn't stop crying she said i relate to that scene where he says you haven't read the quran like in such a sweet but judgmental manner there were so many people who said this is my story and i was so excited i was like okay this is going to be great because we're going to have and actually people across cultures you know this film has One of the co-producers is Jewish. One of the co-producers is a Baptist, raised Baptist. Heather Ray comes from an indigenous culture. It's like fully, like very sort of diverse religions. A lot of women in the crew, and all these people related. Like I remember when we were shooting the raid scene. Like just when I was just rehearsing, like my ads were coming, shuddering and crying. They're like, I can't watch this. And I said, Well, this is how brutal it is. And they're like. it's so brutal just in this acting uh, just while we're rehearsing it i can't even imagine what it is but it's true i mean these things happen so why did you choose chicago by the way because i would have assumed it would either be la or new york but you chose chicago was there any significance of the location itself so we actually shot the film in new york for chicago so i'm glad we fooled you oh, so i kept on thinking it looks and then i was like no it says chicago so it must be chicago <laughs> now we actually had a second unit go and film in chicago so there's a bunch of stuff that is chicago well the reason is you know new york it becomes very oh 911 baggage and la we don't have like it's a very dispersed sort of community you know like la is very sort of just um you don't have that sort of sort of the feel of the streets that you have we filmed this on jackson heights or devan chicago was important for me for two reasons i feel like there's a lot of segregation of community in chicago i feel like new york and la in some ways still is Yes, you have like your little Ethiopia and you have like Koreatown and little Tokyo, but people are somehow a little more mixy. And same with New York, it's a it's a melting pot. Mm. But mm. Chicago has a strange, you know, 
and there's a lot of segregation still the police corrupt culture like it's just known a lot for that also i just didn't want it to be like oh this is just a coastal issue like this is happening with immigrant communities you know through throughout america and when you choose a midwestern town it somehow becomes more relatable to like you can extrapolate it to small town america mm. even though chicago by no means is a small yeah. town america and also like i remember the first time i went to devan i fell in love with it that was the first sort of desi community i'd seen mm-hmm. also chicago is historically one of the biggest desi desi hubs right in america let's pivot a little iram let's talk about your personal life so you grew up in pakistan and nigeria can you talk a little bit about that and how often did two cultures conflict i mean the thing is you know we grew up in nigeria but you know my parents are both pakistani and i left nigeria when i was 8 lekin at the same time i feel that i'm i'm you know what they call a third culture kid like i just my ideas my sort of cultural viewpoints are so international at this point in my life because I've spent like a decade or more of my life like a third of my life I've spent in you know in different countries each third has been in a different continent and at some point I think with sort of globalization things become so international you know I mean my core is Pakistani because that's what my ethnicity is and I grew up in Pakistan you know from the age of eight all the way to like college age and so that's when you really form a lot of you know cultural nuances and you know my family still is in pakistan it's not like you know we've all immigrated to america i came here for college and then i stayed behind so i'm pakistani that's who i am i was born in the us so i have a us passport but i'm actually dual you know national i was i was not raised here my parents were doing their education and then they moved back to nigeria where they were and then we finally moved to pakistan when my parents lost their life savings at the bccci bank crash mm-hmm. and that and so then we grew up in Pakistan and I would never trade that for anything you know learning to read and write Urdu I spoke Urdu but I did not read and write it but then I went to Pakistan my first film Josh I remember typing the entire script in translation in Urdu myself because I wanted to make sure ke kisi random house translation na ho matlab the script is a blueprint I'm Pakistani I would say I'm Pakistani that's I bleed green but does it change over the years because i have mentioned this in my previous interviews as well when i came to the us i was more pakistani and not american at all like i did not even know what that meant and now it's been more than a decade and now i am at a point where i am both pakistani and american but i feel like i relate to or i consider myself more of a muslim american than pakistani maybe because i feel like i'm living through my kids now like when i see them i see what they like what they don't like what are their passions how they approach life it's influenced me a lot as well do you think it changes i mean there is a part of me which will always be pakistani and i that that nostalgia that love for pakistan will never go away but what i'm saying is that it has become more balanced now than when i came here initially i mean of course i think that your identity always changes in life it's such a combination of your experiences as much as we talk about labels i also kind of dream of a world where i don't have a label when i say i bleed green it's not a nationalistic sort of thing it's more just that that's you know like the the smells and the sounds like i'm very desi and i mean like anywhere in south asia i immediately feel like okay it's home you know when i i landed in colombo it felt like home or you know being even backpacking through india it feels so similar and um i guess that part of it's like culturally i'm very desi the food the music the shairi the clothes 
the mehndi yeah and when i go back to pakistan and i go to bazaar and they call me baji i love it i miss that so much i'm like shooting in pakistan is like a dream filmmaking is my passion but i'm so happy when i'm doing it in pakistan because it's just you know what i absolutely love and these days my thoughts are really with them is like the day laborers and sort of like the frontline people you know the 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 boy who'll bring your chai and and you know the the darzi and the, like they're just so sweet and so nice and so yeah. humble and so there's this sort of weird sort of brotherhood sisterhood camaraderie respect you know culture uh, hospitality friendship that is just sort of unrivaled you know and it comes from the old world so to answer your question i think we are we are just like chameleons you know when we are dropped in one place we actually are it's a strength like you know people have i i don't like how in the industry in pakistan there's always this like oh like they always want to say i'm pakistani american and i'm like no i'm pakistani i live in america you know wanting to always make you feel like an outsider and i'm just kind of like no like we actually have all this strength like in america i can survive in america and pakistan i can survive in pakistan you know i am somebody who grew up in like you know my father's side was very very sort of modest financially we middle class people and it's like i am comfortable eating on the floor sitting on a charpai and i'm also comfortable pitching to like an investor in burj dubai you know that's who i am and i take that as a strength i don't take it as a weakness ke oh i'm going to hide ke you know my my dada left everything in india during partition and had a auto mechanic workshop that's my background you know my mother's my nana was a postmaster you know they they were these really wealthy people in india who left everything in partition and had to rebuild up to me that's strength that's not weakness and if anything in this world order we're realizing that the people who know how to build themselves up back from scratch that's the biggest strength and so this whole like conversation about sort of that's the other thing it's like i think you can be everything at once and like you know i'm married to a caucasian and my my daughter and people are like oh it's going to be so difficult how are you going to raise her what is she going to be and i said you know what she's going to be stronger for the you know combination of these genes she's going to have access to like the old world and the new world to asia and to america you know um if anything biology has shown us that when you mix genetics you form like even stronger sort of you know gene pools and so we we need to learn from that if if you know science is very beautiful it has a very sort of objective way of stating the truths of our world and just look at that like if you mix two gene pools you make a stronger more surviving sort of individual what does that tell us that tells us that we need to all meld and unite and that's how we will be stronger like if we mix our cultures and our strengths and who we are we will actually have a more diverse sort of outlook on life a stronger more foolproof way to sort of fight whether it's a virus or you know fight i don't know whatever the enemy might be in the future let's talk about science so you came to the us to do your bachelor's in environmental science engineering <laughs> how did you go from that to film and does your background help you as a filmmaker let me answer the second question first i think that everything in your life your life experience helps you as a filmmaker i think science in some very interesting way has helped me in terms of my analytical skills in terms of how i see story structure i'm an engineer and there's a, like i'm very fast with story structure things are like easy for me that way i'm not worried about tech on set like i'm not like worried about talking about depth of field and like wide angles and like you know longer lenses and you know wide lenses like i'm not uncomfortable around technology i've started i taught myself how to edit and i edit now like it's not software is not difficult for me as far as uh, you know i grew up in a house where my mother is a physicist in fact like 
in the 70s, my mom and her like five other sisters and her brother were all like scientists, like botanists, physicists. My my mamu went to McGill for his PhD in the 70s. So in the 70s, for Pakistani women to all have their masters, I mean, that was actually anywhere in the world that was pretty amazing. So I come from a lot of education on my mom's side. And my dad was a chemistry professor. So science was a big part in the family, you know, and I was Pakistan's first physics Olympiad girl. I qualified for the Asian Physics Olympiads and then I got to, into Caltech. And at that point, Caltech was like number one in the world. And so it was like, oh, of course I'm coming. But then when I came here, it was so brutally science. And I thought of like, oh, America, you know, lockers and like, you know, jocks and cheerleaders. Yeah, well, Caltech was nothing like that. Very sort of, you know, my first summer, I was in the sub-basement, not even the basement, like putting these like DNA strands on semiconductor chips and baking them in the scanning electron microscope and or like uh, looking at them in the scanning electron microscope. And I just was like, what is this? You know, I just kind of immediately saw what cutting edge science would be like and what the life would be like. And frankly, it just was not glamorous enough for me. Somebody who had grown up on Bollywood and come from a culture that was so loud and colorful. Like I needed people around me and I just immediately was like, I'm good at science, but this is not what I'm passionate about. And um, I had grown up on Bollywood. My parents are huge Bollywood fans. Like in Nigeria, they I remember they told me the story that when Silsila came out, the theater was sold out, but they stood and watched the whole film. And we used to have this like closet of VHSs in our house. You know, old VHSs, this like Nigerian guy would get us these like bootleg copies of Bollywood films and mom and daddy would, you know, sort of screen them before showing them to my sisters and I and I would kind of climb in bed and pretend I was sleeping but watch the whole film with them and then watch it again with my sisters. And um, even as young as like whatever, five, six, I remember I would just memorize dial, like not like intentionally, but they would just sit in my brain. And so when I think about, you know, when I write personal statements for grants and stuff, it goes back to how early that was, which is that I loved storytelling. I was obsessed with Shah Rukh Khan. My production company is called Parveen Shah Productions, where Shah is for Shah Rukh, Parveen is for my mom. Oh, wow. So grew up in Bollywood, loved it. So when I was at Caltech, I was like, you know what? And I love dance. Dance is my first passion, actually. But, you know, there's just no way I was going to be a professional dancer coming from sort of a middle class Pakistani household. And so at Caltech, I basically did everything I could. And I, uh, during uh, the summers, applied for all these things. And I got into this, I got this grant where I was allowed to uh, go to England. And then I took a digital production class in the summer. And and then, you know, I applied to film school and applied to the Watson Fellowship, which is a travel grant, and applied to like financial, sorry, these um, DE Shaw, these consulting companies, you know. I got all three of them. And that's when I made a decision that I was just going to go travel for a year and then deferred my film school application. But it was really, honestly, it was out of ignorance in some ways. Like, it was just like something I really loved. And I kind of fell into it. What was your parents' reaction? I mean, my mom freaked out, not only because of what I was thinking, but also just she was like, this is so expensive. You're going to take all these loans because, you know, we didn't, we couldn't afford to film school. And for her, it was her immediate concern was like, oh, my God, that means you're never going to come back to Pakistan because you're going to take these loans and then you're going to try and get a job to pay these loans. And and um, so that was the first thing. And then I was traveling. I ended up doing the Watson. I was traveling around the world and asking people why they dance. And that actually came, found its roots back in some ways to this film. And uh, during that, I remember my mom praying that I got the Watson Fellowship just so that, you know, film school ka bhoot utar jayega sar se. <laughs> and uh, much to her chagrin, I reapplied the next day and I got in and uh, I went to USC film school for my master's. So they, I mean, honestly, their reactions were very, like, honest. Like, parents just want their kids to do well, right? And so she said, 
that you are going into a profession that's all about, I mean, she was very perceptive, like for not being in the arts. She said, listen, it's all about who you know and about being rich. And she said, I guarantee you we're not rich and we don't know anybody in this business. And she was absolutely right. I mean, a lot of my struggles have been trying to, you know, buy trust of the rich community, even here in America, like, you know, in the middle of a pitch, they'll ask you what your last name is. What does your dad do? Are you married? Wow. So, Kiram, who are your artistic influences? Like, I'm not a filmmaker who, like, you know, really, like, follows one filmmaker and really watches and studies their work. I have never been that person. Like, and maybe it's arrogant, but I don't feel like, oh, you have to, like, love Godfather or you have to watch all these films before you decide to become a filmmaker. Um, but some people who I really, really love are, you know, I love Wong Kar Wai's work. In the Mood for Love is one of my favorite films. But then, like, Richard Linklater's Before Sunrise is a favorite of mine. I like Michael Winterbottom's work. I love Danny Boyle's work. I love um, Nicole Holofcener's work here in the U.S. I love Frida by Julie Taymor. So there's just varying things. I love Mira Nair. So if you could say there's some one person I really, like, look up to, it's Mira's work. Uh, I just love how she makes films. They're so, like, just flavorful. So, yeah, I mean, I would say just a, a bunch of filmmakers, you know, but grew up on Yashraj. There's a lot of types, of, like, I love Bollywood, but I don't see myself ever making, like, a a full, full-on, like, Bollywood spectacle, like a Ye Jivani Adivani, that's just not who I am. But, you know, so I, I go anywhere from, like, Gritty, like, I love, um, like, just, you know, Delhi Crime on Netflix, I love that type of stuff. I love Succession, I love Delhi Crime, I love The Crown, I love Handmaid's Tale. So it's, like, all these... Palettes of very sort of strict drama, drama thriller. That's what you like. And that's what yeah. I like. But I also, I love grit. I mean, I love foreign film. I'm a big fan of like Iranian cinema, Turkish cinema. You know, I feel like I should be watching, I should watch more international cinema. I don't do that, which is unfortunate. I've, I watch Hollywood and Bollywood and then um, Lollywood, but that's it. I should, you know, expand my horizon when it comes to... Bong Joon-ho said, and he said, you know, the moment you get over that two-inch barrier of subtitles, like, you will start, you will open yourself to, like, a world that's incredible. Like, yeah. I mean, Parasite is a great example of that. I watched it and I was floored. It's such a good movie. So, Iram, recently there has been this general wave of British-Pakistani representation in the arts with films like Blinded by the Light and now Riz Ahmed's The Long Goodbye. What do you think are main differences between, say, British-Pakistani and I don't want to use the term American-Pakistani, Pakistani-American, because you just pointed that out, but yeah, experiences that people may not know of. You know, I mean, it, again, it all goes back to patterns of immigration, right? I had actually at some point, I have this series that I'm very excited about that's based on Mirpuris in England. But, you know, it's just so difficult again because everybody thinks like, oh, but you're living in America and why are you doing this British story? It's like, why can't? Stories is stories is story. But uh, in this day and age, it's so important that, you know, people like your bio needs to fit where the stories are coming. What fascinates you about Mirpuri's story? To answer your question, like does the the demographics of who went to Europe or England versus the demographics of who came to America defines the type of storytelling, right? I mean, the people who went to England in the 50s, 60s, 70s were a lot of villagers. So, you know, you the parents are villagers and the kids have gone to Oxford and Cambridge. So it's so much conflict there. You know, the parents forced all these arranged marriages for a lot of these kids. And so they're 
like when you are talking to people in Manchester, Bradford, Birmingham, it's kind of like they go from like very posh English to like Tate Punjabi. People who came to America came from the cities. And they were mostly professionals. They were all professionals. So the craft coming actually from England, I think, is more interesting because they have more history to go on. They have been in that part, I would say, 20 to 30 years more than Pakistani Americans. So as a result, and the percentage representation is way higher. So they're also greenlit. The stories are greenlit more like it, people know what Pakistani is in England. In America, it's we're still very novel, right? I mean, in America, the minority, the model minorities are blacks and Latinos. Then it's starting to be East Asians, and then maybe it's us. They don't understand the difference between Indian and Pakistani, hence the jokes in the film. You know, I always thought that model minority in America are East Asians. Well, I guess like when you look at diversity fellowships or whatever, like immediately when you talk about diversity or color in America, it's black and Latino. It, mm. Nobody thinks of us. Because we are somehow, A, we are very quiet. Um, the Asian American generally, East Asian, South Asian is a much quieter minority. We like to kind of go about our business. We come from a country and a place where it's like, you know, we just kind of want to go about our business, make our bills and be fine. So, and also I think that the oppression, it goes back to oppression. Like when you're very oppressed, then you sort of revolt, which is also why I think that the, the Pakistani community in England is different is because they have had to see sort of like a harsh sort of racist reaction you know and they were they were doing sweat jobs so that is why that's the comparison i was trying to make whereas the community here is sort of rich and comfortable very educated from the highest income group is the asian americans in america right so so because of that there isn't this like oh my god you're so mean to us and you've not been like you know you're abusing our rights so there isn't as much of a reaction and in england like you know, I feel like there's always more Indians than Pakistanis just by nature of the population, but like Pakistanis have their own representation. In America, like when you think brown, like for South Asia, it's immediately just Indian. There is no room for Pakistan. So on your website, you state that you think that genuine curiosity is the antidote to fear. Can you elaborate on that? What does that mean? I mean, I just, I think that uh, sort of what I was saying earlier, like we need to not be scared of the other. Mm-hmm. And... Um, if we genuinely want to understand and travel and learn, then we won't be scared of other people because we'll realize that there's nothing to be scared of. You know, there's so much common ground and there's so much beauty, even if they're different. And so Mm. by genuine curiosity, I mean like when you're actually interested in learning about other people, not for the sake of just, you know, pitching an idea for a script, but actually you want to know how they live, how they think, why they think the way they do. And then you understand you, when you understand people, then you're not scared of them. Iram, can you share what you're working on right now? Well, I'm working on a series that I'm very excited about. I can't talk about it. I'm breaking this series that is set in South Asia that I'm super excited about. I have a project called Vakri uh, in Punjabi. Ah. That means like Anoki, like one of a kind. It was a uh, one of 15 projects selected at Cannes um, Special Market. They invite 15 mid-career directors and I was one of them. So I was very proud to represent Pakistan. That's inspired by Kandil Baloch. It is not about her, but it's inspired by her spirit. And so it's about a accidental social media star. We're hoping to shoot that end of next year. You know, everything is sort of like on hold and pushed because of this situation. So we're working on that uh, on the feature side. And then uh, I'm trying to get into the television space here in the US for writing and directing. I'm writing a thriller right now, uh, which I'm very excited about. It's set in a very relevant space. Again, I can't talk about that more, but that's sort of my own passion project that I'm chipping away on. 
Uh, I wrote a television pilot on, uh, it's about an ICE detention center. And it was about a Pakistani doctor who's thrown in and you try and understand why she's in there. And she meets a Mexican um, freedom fighter, matriarch, who's nine months pregnant. It's about their sort of, it's called Detained. And so that has made a bunch of lists in Hollywood. You know, this was supposed to be a great time for me. <laughs> it still is. That I was Hopefully, supposed to go into all yeah. these meetings and talk about I'll meet you there and detained and all these like, you know, amazing things in the work. But, you know, they're there, they're out there. People are reading them and watching and we're trying to do whatever we can. But I'm right now just focusing on writing and trying to get opportunities to meet showrunners virtually so that I can get some sort of directing jobs for television lined up. That's wonderful. So in the end, if you were to describe America... How would you do that? America is, um, it's an attempt for a society where we're not bogged down by tradition and rules. We can actually create and recreate ourselves. That's that's what I think the promise of the land is. But I think that very quickly, like at anywhere else, that promise of the land has changed. And now there are all these rules and there are these definitions of who is American and who isn't and who's allowed and who's not allowed. But I think the beauty of this land is the possibility. And the possibility that you can go from rags to riches, it is still true. You know, it's not an aristocratic society like England or like a super sort of class system sort of place like Pakistan. So I think America is very much still a land of, uh, a land where you can redefine yourself, I would say. It's a land of ridding labels for new labels. Thank you so much, Iram. This was wonderful. Best of luck. I can't wait to see all the projects that you're working on. Inshallah. Thank you so much, Sadia. And I hope that we can talk to you again when we take the film out on the road. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed Iram's interview. We are on Twitter and Instagram. And all of this information is on our website, which is immigrantlypod.com. Be sure to tune in next week. We have another incredible story. In the meantime, stay safe and distant. Thank you.